0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to Nodes in the Net, a weekly, tangential, irreverent conversation that caters to the interests of liminal trickster mystics like you. And like Elizabeth Roderick. Elizabeth Roderick is the author of several many books, including uh, The Hustle and Gracie and Zeus, Live the Dream, which just won the Bible for mystery. Elizabeth Roderick is an author... And a delightful person who's just joined the Creek Mason Discord. So uh, come check her out online and uh, benefit from her sage wisdom and wonderful woo ideas, which we will explore thoroughly in this podcast. This is one of those great podcasts where you've got like a really talented author, someone whose books I I actually genuinely really love. I find uh, very spicy, <laughs> as as they say. Uh, and and also just very engaging. Uh, but this is one of those great podcasts where you get someone on who's a talented artist and you just have a fantastic conversation. It's not forced kind of like, let's talk about my work. Can we get back to talking about Rampart? Uh, you know, like that famous Reddit AMA. Uh, it's just a good chat about stuff that we're both super interested in. And I think that that makes it a lot more fun for you to listen to. I'm not sure if that's true, but it's certainly more fun for me to record. <laughs> uh, this, <laughs> this was a delight. Uh, so I'm not going to beat around the bush too much. You can find Elizabeth Roderick at talesfrompurgatory.com. And yeah, why don't you check out some of her books? They genuinely are page turners. Uh, So let's jump right into that. But before we do, of course, I have to plug creekmasons.substack.com, where currently we are hosting uh, my blog posts. And there will likely be other people's blog posts on there very soon if the direction that things seem to be going in the Creek Mason Discord continues to play out in the manner that it is appearing to play out. There's so much energy, so much excitement, and I sound like a salesperson trying to convince you to join his cult. I, I'm very sensitive to the fact that it sounds that way, but it's really not the case. It's just a wonderful group of people who I genuinely feel are, like, cooler than I deserve to be around. <laughs> it's just a wonderful uh, group of friends, a tight-knit community online. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it in this week's Substack essay, which is at creekmasons.substack.com. Uh, this is a story that is that has kind of resulted from uh, the recent crisis in uh, Israel, uh, but you know, it's, obviously, the the war between Israel and Hamas. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to comment on that because I'm not a historian. I'm not someone who's into political ideology. It's just not my wheelhouse, and I don't feel like any take that I could possibly give on it could be informed enough to be helpful, useful, or even... Uh, potentially a positive contribution to the world and to all of the yelling <laughs> that goes on online. So I'm not going to do that. But I am going to talk a little bit in the, you know, the Creek Masons blog and in about 10 seconds about the way that the Creekmasons community reacted to, uh, you know, the horrible news of, of terrorism and, and retaliation that's going on over there and the sort of kumbaya moment that we had that I think is potentially instructive, potentially very inspiring. Um, at least it was to me. This essay is called The Baby Waterfall Conventions, which is named after a little magic ritual that one of our newest Creek Masons suggested. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's... I, 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 I don't know. I don't know why my voice always goes up like that. It's really like kind of embarrassing. Jeff just entered puberty. Um, (laughs) But uh, yes, Uh, the baby waterfall conventions are a magical ritual that's going to create peace and harmony in your corner of the world through the appreciation and instantiation of real beauty. And I think that you should check out the essay uh, to understand the full method Uh, But let's talk a little bit before we do about the conflict itself and the aftermath, the sort of meta-conversation that resulted. So here's a little clip from the baby waterfall conventions on creekmasons.substack.com. How could this have been prevented? When things cooled down, disappointingly, only after a person I consider a real friend, despite only knowing them online, decided they needed a break and bounced, There was a lot of remorse on the server. We took turns analyzing what might have gone wrong during the flaming from a practical perspective. We took turns apologizing. We shared our values. We were vulnerable. We shared empathy for one another. We shared our aspirations for what community might best embody. Eventually, the conversation coalesced into talk of uncovering a new rule that might prevent people from quitting in frustration in the future. Something about... Assuming the best in others and not implying threats of exile through demonization. Something about decorum and gentleness or prioritizing promoting safety over speaking freely. Something about engaging in conflict with the honest intention to discover slash uncover our common values. Searching with the presupposition that we'll certainly find them and should go upstream, meta, or abstract to whatever degree is necessary to get there. Something about being willing to abandon your debate position temporarily to make sure the person you're in conflict with feels unequivocally heard. But these suggestions seemed too prescriptive, too limiting. The sense I got was that we could begin to outlaw each and every aspect of of behavior that resulted in an unacceptable level of conflict without ever getting to the actual root, without developing a methodology of communication, a general stance of lucid participation that creek masons could emulate and embody, we'd be damning ourselves to infinite rule explosion. So we asked ourselves, what are the practical tools that will allow this kind of loving posture to naturally emerge when conflict is rising? We landed on electing a moderator and implementing technological and procedural solutions that might engender space and reverence. This moderator, which we will be electing soon after this post goes live, will be responsible for enforcing slow mode, which prevents people from typing more than, say, one message every two minutes, so that people could talk with greater intention behind their words. While in slow mode, there's going to be a mandate to become much more intentional with what we type. An example outline. One, what I think you're saying. Two, why I think that. Three, how that affects me. Four, what I need you to know going forward. Another template from nonviolent communication might be, one, what I think you're feeling. Am I right? Two, what basic human needs I think that emotion is trying to communicate. And three, what I'd like to do to try to meet those needs. They seem like rules that would help in any situation, where there's misunderstanding or hurt, don't they? Create space, create reverence, communicate with intention. So why haven't we, as a civilization, implemented them? All right, that's all I'm going to read for now. I hope you, uh, you know, check out the rest of that essay. But before you do, you're already here. Listen to this wonderful episode with Elizabeth Roderick. Here it is. Enjoy.
1: time it was acknowledged
0: yeah (laughs) well you know with with you you know writing books that cater to the liminal trickster mystics it only solidifies it as a demographic more i think like one of the big problems with us in the duncan trussell sort of extended community uh is that we're like not super into being uh Like follower type people, you know, there's no like group aesthetic that, you know, we all like, we all wear pink on Wednesdays or whatever. I think
1: if we did get a good cult leader that we could all get behind, we could have a hell of a cult though. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) We're just, we're waiting for our Messiah to appear. (laughs) And, but, you know, most of them end up being too boring or too problematic eventually, so we'll yeah, keep, we'll keep looking,
0: yeah, well, that's the problem. All the messiahs are are human. we need a we need a, an alien perhaps, or and
1: an elder God reappearing on the planet would be nice. like that what you <laughs> ask for.
0: Yeah, for real. Like, I I'm, my body is full of plastic and lead. Like, why can't I have an elder god as well?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> what does a person have to fill their body with around here to <laughs> get a vision of a good god?
0: Yeah. Uh, so that's, I think that's about as good an intro to the podcast as, <laughs> as we can hope for. Uh, I drew a tarot card for us. We've got the Page of Pentacles uh, over in the divination channel. Uh, this is uh, kind of a, a fun card. I like the way that he's uh, sort of like delicately standing and holding his pentacle up in the air. Like uh, it's a, you know to describe the card, it's a yellow sky and a, a sort of a natural landscape. There's mountains, trees, grass, and the page. Who is uh, of course, the the Earth Suit, uh, Pentacles. And the page is is typically, I think, considered the air element of the Earth Suit. So this is like applying your mind to um like kind of material reality, like make making things happen in real life. Like uh, getting getting your family stuff together, making sure your oil is changed, all that good like bringing stuff. Bringing
1: your imagination into reality, sort of.
0: Yeah, yeah. All the pages are very much about uh, that kind of like uh, beginning of ideation, where you're like you're pulling down something and uh, birthing it into the world. Does that bring up anything for you?
1: I mean that's my that's my whole shtick. Like that's. In in my sort of personal cosmology and in my my books, like that's the only common thread is the intersection of imagination and reality, like dreams and reality, mm. um, like just kind of the definition of what is reality to begin with, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's been a long time since I've thrown tarot. So I don't know if I'm getting if I'm getting that right. If that's kind of what that's about or not. Uh, well, I think, uh,
0: you know, when it comes to tarot, a big part of it is just your intuition, you know, like a big part of it is what you bring to the card. I don't know that there's necessarily like a a tarot god that's yeah. in charge of every pull that I Type into Discord, you know, although maybe there is, who knows? That, I think that's part of the fun of the fuzzy boundaries of reality. Um,
1: yeah. I mean, that's like, if there is a God, it's Terry Pratchett rules. Like there's a God because we <laughs> made the God who made us. Like, yeah. I don't know if you read Terry Pratchett at all, the Deskrolls series.
2: Yeah,
0: I have, I've, Touched a little bit of it. My best friend is like, you know, from like high school days is always trying to, you know, but it's a million books, (laughs) you know, where do you start? Uh,
1: Any of them. That's the beauty of the Discworld series. You can start with any of them and yeah, they're, they're all
2: good. Um, But yeah, like the, that's, I think the, secret to
1: magic is that it both is and isn't what you think it's going to be like there's tales of people like um, you know, gurus who can levitate and like <laughs>
2: roll
1: down orbs and and all of that stuff and I I mean I yeah. I am not going to discount that. I haven't seen it myself, but I have seen the way that there's this nexus of belief and reality where synchronicities start happening. And the Mm. more that you allow the, these sort of, odd occurrences or synchronicities to be real in your life, the more they appear.
2: Yeah. And
1: it, um, it gets to the point where at some point you have to admit that this, this stuff is just happening. Like, (laughs) yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people talk about how they look at how older people become more religious. If we want to just put it in a very mundane way, and mm-hmm. they think that it's because they're scared of death or because they're <laughs> not cool enough to be atheists anymore or whatever <laughs> but i think that i think that the reason that more people start turning to spiritual spirituality as they get older is because they've finally seen enough to know that the material world isn't all there is it's like at some yeah. point all of those synchronicities and weird things and like you know, someone someone you love dies, and you wake up, and they're standing next to your bed, and you're like, oh, that? and then, and or like you think about someone who's died, and the light starts flickering when it never mm-hmm. flickers, or like you lose something and find it somewhere where you know you didn't lose it. Yeah, you know, like I think most people have uh, at least one occurrence in their life once they get to a certain age, especially that they can't explain by mm-hmm. material reality rules. Like they Yeah. And you know, if if you're lucky enough, you get enough of those where eventually you have to kind of give up and say, yeah. okay, so there's Let's weird see. shit that happens. Like that's just <laughs> what I can't explain it. That's you know, and you either um go Fool, woo-woo or full spiritual or you have to lock those in a box in your head and just pretend that it's not there I guess
2: so, yeah
0: yeah yeah I mean there's like there's two stories that are kind of coming to mind right now there's uh you know the guy Rupert Sheldrake uh who invented the concept of morphic resonance uh, which is is kind of this like theory that we're like all connected. There's like a field that vibrates between us. And when I uh, exude joy and love or or whatever, it creates it in other people. It resonates through the morphic field. Uh, so he was explaining this concept to a group of scientists, if I'm remembering the story right. And, uh, you know, kind of talking about it in through the lens of like, there's something psychic going on here like i can communicate with my pets you know what i mean like yeah. there's there's a real inexplicable element to to reality that we have to admit and you know like as a group the the uh you know the audience that he was speaking to was very like resistant they they were kind of uh derisive even.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh but then he he like afterwards he's talking to these people one on one and asking them like, hey, you know, have you ever had like a miracle story? Have you ever had something that you just absolutely couldn't explain? Every single one of them says yes. You know? And um the other story is uh the guy whose name I'm not gonna remember is like a very uh well known funder of scientific research like one of the primary grant writers for psychology um but there's no way I'm going to remember his name Mitch Horowitz talks about him all the time uh basically it, his his whole thing is that he like regardless of whether the studies on psychic phenomena are like <laughs> uh like profoundly well designed and like you know reproducible even uh it, 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 I think the quote is something along the lines of like I hate psychic research because I can't prove that it's not true, but I also can't believe that it is, and like that's that's the mentality of this like dying worldview I think that where that we're saddled so. with.
1: Yeah, I mean, because there there's actually and like I I was an atheist for most I was raised an atheist same. And, but after my uncle died in this room that I'm sitting in right now. Oh, wow. He, he left this house to my daughter, and this this my, my daughter owns the house I'm in now. But, um, hmm. uh, I'm moving out soon. She's in college. But, uh, <laughs> after my uncle died, and we were living in the house where he died, so much strange shit started mm. and it kind of coincided with this spiritual awakening thing that I'd been happening that had been happening to me over the past two years but like and mm. then I stumbled on the research of dr. Ian Stevenson who did research on children who remember past lives oh yeah and 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 like when I first heard that, I'm like, no fucking way! That like that's bullshit. And then I started, I like read his actual, he has his actual data, uh, mm-hmm. so you can read it, and like read all the reviews of it. And the only way that other scientists can debunk his data is by either not reading it at all and just saying, no, that's bullshit, it has to be, we know that's not yeah. real, or just saying every single, all of the thousands and thousands of people that were involved in all of this data collection are either all crazy or lying Mm -hmm. and like that's not and it's like oh it's just anecdotes but like at a certain point in scientific research all we have is anecdotes yeah so and like for certain things like in the slippery nature of a lot of this stuff is that it's hard to reproduce in a lab like Mm.
2: especially
1: with esp there's there's good research, there's good studies that show that that telepathy is real. And and it's just the fact that it's really hard like if I'm sitting here and like some person that I don't even know is thinking of a card in a different room, I don't mm. care what fucking card he's thinking about. So <laughs> the chance that I'm gonna be able to guess that is pretty pretty minimal. But the mm. Times when people have these telepathic insights is when someone they really love is in danger for instance yeah like that's that's when we have all of these anecdotes and and they're not reproducible but we can verify that they happened by talking to other people around them when it happened like mm. so it's not just One person we have to say is lying. We have to say that like dozens of people are lying. And at what point are you just closing your mind off to things that are obviously (laughs) happening when it's like all like pretty much everybody has a story like this, and we either have to ignore it or we have to allow that like this is happening. Yeah. And so, but yeah, like I started getting led down this rabbit hole of all of Mm. these really well credentialed scientists who are doing research into all of this fantastically woo stuff and <laughs> getting results that it's real. Can
0: you, can you uh, explain no like some of the, like how, how what is the, I, I've heard a little bit about this, but like, what is the past life research? What, what's the structure of it? Like if you're reading his document, what are you going to, what are you going to encounter?
1: Well, um, he's written a lot of books that, that kind of summarize it, but his, mm. like, notes are just, he traveled when he died, I think in 20, like, not that long ago, but not real recently. But bef- before that, he traveled all around the world, especially, like, the Middle East, and um, and, like, he went to Lebanon a lot, he went to India a lot, and he just got thousands of cases, of small children who spontaneously just started talking about another life that they had before they were born and like and they were too little like they were 2 years old it's like when they first started yeah. talking they and they and they would never talk about being someone famous or important that they would have heard about yeah. it was just like a lady who lived 30 miles away in this village that we'd never heard of who sold bananas for whole life, and like the yeah. kid would know the name of her husband, her children, her dog. Like remember her address. Like they would take the kid to the village, and the kid would lead the her, her new parents to the house where she had lived, where her fa- hmm. whole family still lived, and they would verify what? all this. And he had like thousands of cases of uh, where they but they call them solved cases when they were able to identify um within a reasonable amount of certainty the person that the kid had been in the prior life. And <laughs> and he is very methodical going through, well, you know, maybe the kid heard about it. Like yeah. going through all of the the ways that it there could be a normal explanation. Yeah. And he's very scientific about running you through all of that and he's very careful about saying that you know these cases are suggestive of reincarnation but Mm -hmm. as a regular person looking at all that data it's like you know you can bullshit all you want but it's happening like this is, it's, it's like and the only like people who really look at the data and really think about it and aren't just like oh no they're all lying the only other explanation that they can come up with is like really limited cases of ESP. Like these kids are mm. somehow focusing in on the mind data of one specific dead person, mm. and, um, and they can't read anybody else's mind or channel anyone else. But yeah, like that's the only other explanation for all of the data. And,
2: yeah,
1: uh, that that people who take it seriously. Um, can come up with and yeah wow. his books um are um, they they changed my life and also led me into like other researchers like Bruce Grayson who um studies near death experiences mm. um and he they are they're doing lots of good research of of that as well um yeah where you know people clinically die and are able to see things that happened in other places like far from where their physical body is and they're able to verify like yeah right. that happened you know like yeah. so there's some good there's some good stuff there too. So it's it's good science. It's fun science.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> and it's, At it's, it's, it's not the only reason it's not Better known is that the most of the s- mainstream scientific community is derisive about it and won't even read the data. They're just like, "I know that's not true, so I'm not going to read it." And like, yeah, literally, that's the only reason.
0: Yeah, stigma, stigma, yeah. And, and dogmatism. Yeah, and and the potential for excommunication from the Church of Science, you know? Yeah,
1: like, I mean, I, I hate to be that guy that says stuff like that, but it's it's true. Like I. You know, my my last husband is a doctor of biophysics, and, like, I was in school. I was going to get a PhD in chemistry until mm. like, I started reading books instead, or writing books instead, and, like, yeah. so I have a foundation and all that stuff. I'm not just some freaking lady in purple robes who <coughs> thinks she was God's wife in a different dimension or whatever, like... <laughs> Channeling the alien goddess and and all pa- like anybody who's like that that's cool I love those people too but that's not who I am personally. And
0: yeah, so, okay. <laughs> yeah, I I also same right. Like I, I I I absolutely love the New Age people. You know who like toes the line really in like a fun way is uh, Eben Alexander. Have you ever? Yes.
1: Read any yeah, of his yeah. Stuff? I read like his is one of the first books I read too, where he had that freaked out near-death experience yeah I
2: mean.
0: yeah and right like he's a he's a neuroscientist so he understands something about the meningitis that killed him and you know whatever else and it's like
1: yeah he had him was that yeah he had even alexander on didn't
0: he yeah 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 recently
1: yeah. yeah
0: and then that's that's i so uh it's really funny in his most recent book he recounts uh a, like NPR appearance that he made like 10 years ago, he was on this, this show called intelligence squared where they like it's two versus two debating a topic. And the topic was like life ends at or consciousness ceases at death. So of course, Eben Alexander is giving his like new age spiel about how, you know, he, he, went into the rainbow Valley or, or whatever he calls it and like had all these experiences and there's good evidence for reincarnation like you're talking about. And uh, you know, the the commonalities between near death experiences, the life review and the, you know, the, the option that many people are given to either like go back and do good or, you know, move on and, and exist in the infinite love. Uh, and so there's like, there's all of this uh, back and forth that I remember very well from, you know, a dozen years ago or more having like completely changed the trajectory of my life way back then. And, uh, and then now, like, I guess through like random circumstance, I, I started listening to Duncan Trussell in 2020 and, you know, stuck with him long enough for even Alexander to come back up. And that's like a fun synchronicity for me. Like in his most recent book, he's going to, Mention I mean this a dozen years ago it mentions the thing that was like pivotal seminal in in my own uh spiritual you know i guess divorce of atheism, you know like really when i I started becoming a more like questioning woo person who uh was less enthralled by the sort of militant debate lord redditor atheism <laughs> debate
1: lord yeah yeah my mom my mom was the capital A Atheist who like she like made fun of me for like asking <laughs> questions about God she, she was like that lord yeah. like internet guy yeah. in my actual house when I was a kid and
2: like <laughs> and, yeah well I mean we we I don't, I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say but like
1: about how he mentioned that in this book and it was a seminal moment for you it's like we're all reaching out to each other and all these ways energetically and we're all mm. connected. And like, um, you know, I, I think those moments have meaning. Like, of course they only have meaning as much as we give them meaning. But I think, like I said, the more we give them meaning, the more we look for these weird connections between us and, um, and, and, Allow ourselves to recognize the truth and the beauty in them. Like the better mm. life is, I think that's yeah, kind of. You can't really refute that, right? Like, the more we feel connected, the more we find meaning in our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And you don't even have to believe that when you die, you're gonna, your consciousness is going to continue on. Like I don't, I, you know, maybe not everybody does, but like, yeah, it doesn't mean you can't find meaning and joy in in and in our connection now and in the and in the cool shit that happens in the world now so like yeah
0: right i mean well the the philosophical pragmatist approach right like the whole william james thing like he uh do you know william james philosopher like well. yeah yeah he's, he's um local to me so i i've, I've heard of him a bit uh but he he was uh teaching at stanford during the 1906 san francisco earthquake so he he felt it it was you know strong enough for the dormitory in stanford to collapse and the 1906 earthquake is really famous for being one of those situations kind of like you know like katrina or something where the national guard steps in and just starts like you know uh, wildly perpetrating violence against people that they call looters. And uh, the the reality in San Francisco that William James was able to like have access to inform his theories about was that the like normal people were banding together. They were like building fire lines and they were, um, you know, like passing buckets of water to try and put out the fires and they were like they had abandoned capitalism. It was a bartering economy and people who had a little bit of extra soup were giving it to the people whose house just burned down. And it was like, uh, it's where the Rebecca Solnitz book, A Paradise Built in Hell, like that's where it gets its name. Uh, one of the survivors of the 1906 earthquake said that like San Francisco became a paradise that was built in hell. One second, my dog's barking. So anyway, this is a very convoluted way of introducing the idea. But what William James observed was that the uh, the people who were, you know, in the National Guard, especially the, like the, you know, the head guy, uh, I forget what their title is in the National Guard, but they had this belief about human nature, that people were generally evil. And... They would use this disaster as an opportunity to steal and commit crimes and just generally behave in unsavory ways. Uh, the people who were actually experiencing the disaster firsthand demonstrated a, a belief in human nature that was more optimistic. And they, they, as a result, according to pragmatism, they... Um, banded together and like looked out for each other and, you know, made sure that everyone was taken care of. And so this relates to what you were just saying in that, like, it matters less what we believe and more what the effects of those beliefs are. Right. Like, why, why would you focus on the, you know, the, I guess like the, the potential negatives of human behavior if it's going to cause you personally to commit horrible atrocities. Right. Whereas like you're saying it, I mean like, why not uh, just dance a little bit with the, with the woo silliness if it brings you a little bit of dopamine, you know, like if nothing else, this like cascading chain of synchronicities like that, that little like drip of pattern recognition is dopamine that that is just delightful to <laughs> yeah. to 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 build with
2: like it's the
1: same paradox with how much crime and violence the police cause in America mm-hmm. like that the idea. That you need to constantly be keeping society in check. Yeah, the reason that you need to keep society in check, like it's a, it seems to be, yeah, and like literally, all we have to do to make the world a utopia is for each one of us to just stop being an asshole. Like all of us. and i mean that means stopping an asshole to ourselves right and it's not always yeah. like as easy as it sounds because you know like one of the jobs that i do is like deal with really high conflict clients who are in the middle of a divorce and like mm-hmm. one or both of them has been ordered by a judge not to be alone with their kids for whatever reason so they're oh. already pretty fucked up before they get to me and then i'm in the middle of these two divorcing people Mm. who are in a custody battle and like like they can be really awful to me when i'm just sitting here trying to schedule a visit with their kid and like i know the reason for that is because they're angry or scared or going through this horrible thing or like maybe like maybe they had trauma that makes them like this all the time. And that's why they got here to begin with. Like I can know it's not about me, but mm-hmm. it doesn't make it any easier to deal yeah. with all of this crap. And so like yeah. not being an asshole is a lovely, is, it's a lovely um, idea that takes constant work.
2: <laughs> yeah. Constant <laughs> and, vigilance. Constant vigilance. And but, like, once once you start doing it, you realize that it always makes your life better. Like, yeah. You it, like, you can't
1: solve all of the world's problems. And, like, you'll overwhelm the fuck out of yourself thinking mm. that you need to. But the one thing you can control is your own reaction, your own behavior. And, like you yeah. can just allow yourself to be a little less miserable and to mm. be a little less miserable toward other people. And like the, each little step you take along that path just makes your life better and better and better and makes the lives of people around you better and better, which makes them yeah, not such assholes to you, you know? Yeah. So like, that's, like it's so simple and it's so hard, but that's the only answer to to saving the planet, just like making the world better is just for each person to be less of an asshole. To the yeah. Best of the to <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. I love it. Amen. That's, <laughs> I, I mean, it's exactly right. And the, you know, interestingly, Rupert Sheldrake, who I brought up earlier, the whole concept of morphic resonance is perfectly represented in like you're walking down the sidewalk and you make eye contact and smile at someone because you're, you know, trying to be less of an asshole and you've got like, you know, some warmth for another human. Maybe the smile, you know, reminds them of their wife and they go home and are nicer to them. And like that effect that, you know, and then the wife is nicer to her boss at work and like it, it ripples out. And whether that's the result of, you know, what metaphor you want to use to describe it, whether it's the result of like vibrating waves wiggling through the fifth dimension or, you know, whatever, or it's just like the natural causal mechanism of like putting out good and good coming back because as a rising tide lifts all boats, um, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the result is the same. and It's delightful to, to attempt. It's, it is hard though. I, you know, here's another, here's another observation. Charles Eisenstein did this speech recently at, uh, it was like Black Mountain or something like that. And he described this strategy that he wanted people to adopt where, when they see someone, uh, I guess, misbehaving or doing something that, that you find Uh, objectionable or or disgusting or whatever. The idea is that you're adding that to the morphic field somehow. Like every person is connected to every other person inevitably. And so when you see something going wrong over there, figure out what ways you're adding to it. And in that way, you can like metabolize a little chunk of the you know, speeding through the suburbs that is <laughs> tempting all of us and, you know, figure out like, what can I do with my own impatience or, you know, what can I do with my own uh, irritability or, or whatever and, that will contribute to the global sum of impatience and irritability lowering, you know?
1: Yeah, I think you were talking about that on one of the episodes that I listened to and like. And I've really been thinking about that. Like, I don't I don't think it's necessarily good that it that you take it in the way that you look at something bad happening over here and you're thinking, What how am I at fault for that? But like because <laughs> there's people who will feel guilty for everything that is not their fault. Yeah. But like it helps me in the way of like when I see somebody doing something that pisses me off. And there's something, there's some things that people do around me all the time that piss me off that they're, it's like, I know I don't really have a right to be pissed off about it, but like a lot of people around here modify their cars to be louder and to backfire yeah. on purpose. It really yes. Just freaks my dog out. My dog won't go on walks anymore because of yeah. all this. And so I just like, when I see someone like that, I just like think about them. Like they're, A big huge fucking sore butthole on the face of the planet but like when I look at them and I'm like and I think about why they want to do that and like how I have in my human nature ways that I want to you know I want to feel cool I want to I want to like
2: take up space
1: yeah, I want to take up space. I, I want to mob down the street with my, you know, with my Skrillex bumping or whatever the fuck I'm doing that day. And, like, it makes <laughs> me identify with that person more and, like, acknowledge yeah. their humanity. And, like, it makes my life better and will, in turn, make it so I don't get so overwhelmed by the noise. It will make it yeah. so I don't like one day just flip out and like punch somebody because their car is too loud. Hopefully, <laughs> like,
2: yeah, it, it or helps like
1: us knowledge the connection between us.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like maybe maybe the the violence is is not entirely plot. Although I don't know you, maybe you you're a, a punching kind of person. But, know,
1: uh, I'm two foot one. I I can. I can throw down with the best of them.
0: Yeah. I mean, but any, any expression of that, that's like not integrated of that, like of that sort of othering of the, the person with the broken muffler or whatever it is that they do. It's any, any expression of the rage that that inspires that isn't integrated. Like you could be screaming at them in traffic or flipping them off or whatever. And that creates all sorts of danger. Like, I, I, I don't understand how people like flip off other drivers. That's an insane, or like brake checking. You know, like w- that's you're a in the
1: Bay Area too. Like, you really don't want. Yeah. Like, it, when, especially when you're in the city, you can't behave like that because it's it's dangerous. But I live in redneck and eastern washington and yeah that's like the norm people oh really like being aggressive because there's more room like there's not like when i lived in seattle or you know i lived in california like you couldn't brakes check somebody because someone had to be that close behind you in order to get traffic to move along like that's Mm. all the room that you had but like yeah people do that over that's like the norm here.
0: <laughs> that's so weird yeah. that's so wild uh i want to hear about like the the culture shock of of moving to redneckville because your your books really are here so oh uh, okay so were you always kind of like uh you know one of those stereotypical i'm gonna leave for the big city kind of people or
1: oh, i mean kind of like i I'm autistic and I have severe noise problems. So I've Mm. always like, I like the city. I like the culture of the city. I like the people in the city. I like stuff going on, but then I like to be able to retreat to my quiet place that I can have as much control as humanly possible over what is going on around me.
2: Mm. Especially
1: noise wise and smell wise. And like, (laughs) And so my entire life has been moving to the city until I can't stand it anymore, moving back to the country until I can't stand that anymore, moving like (laughs) literally back and forth, like all the time. And yeah. And like if I were rich enough, I would have a one room cabin in the middle of Wyoming that you had to get to on horseback. And then I would have like a condo in downtown LA or something like yeah and just go back and forth and and
2: yeah
1: yeah so i was always the weird kid who wasn't um into sports and chewing tobacco and <laughs> and beating up gay people as much as like,
2: yeah
1: most other people, but like yeah. but i also really like i like having more space i like the country as well so it's weird so
0: yeah yeah well there i i can i i don't know i think it's a pretty common sentiment in the bay area that you'd like to just like move out somewhere and start a farm you know like uh i have a i my wife has a coworker uh who like posts all the time these like pictures of like life on her farm you know she's she's a work from home kind of tech person and it's it'll be like a carton of eggs or a llama or whatever and it's there's something so idyllic about that like self-reliant you know settler mentality of like you know building a cabin with your own hands and you know living in the remote you know untamed wilderness or whatever or even the halfway tamed wilderness of like a ranch or whatever. Um, So that's, that's really, that's really popular. But the problem is when people are so far apart, they don't like, they don't have a need for developing tolerance. Uh, Like Douglas Rushkoff was just talking about this on his podcast on team human the other day about how like New Yorkers have to ride the subway like there's there's really no option for being in your own little metal bubble for an hour and a half commute and not seeing other people like on any given subway car there's people from every walk of life and every demographic and every like social status except for probably like Elon Musk or whatever yeah. but like uh all, the result of that mentality is that you like you have to develop a certain degree of tolerance for people being different. Uh, And that's, I, I, I don't know if, I wonder what you think about this, but that's something I noticed about um the hustle for sure. And, you know, skimming through some of your, your other books uh, it, it seems like representation is something that's like important to you. There's, there's like a, uh a, a maybe a an opportunity in in reading your books to encounter people who are very different from the reader and to maybe like develop
2: some of that like subway tolerance i mean maybe like so i i definitely
1: like came up as an author in the the diversity boom and i <laughs> have tried to not like have a checklist of identities I need to have in my books but
2: yeah, like,
1: I did um, a lot of the following that I have so far is because of the fact that I am a neurodivergent person like when I was growing up uh, they didn't diagnose people with autism unless you were like nonverbal like, it wasn't a thing in the 80s and so I thought I was schizophrenic because mm. I would have meltdowns and I would have what other people would see as
2: um, breaks from reality just because my sensory input, like when it overloads, it's
1: like I have to withdraw myself from society. And so mm. I thought I was schizophrenic and didn't want anyone to know about it. Yeah. And, um, so, at a point in my life, it was in like 2015, in The Hustle, if you read it, you might um, remember Justin, the boy in the park, the animal cat. Mm. Yeah. That scene, when I was writing The Hustle, was like a verbatim uh, representation of yeah. When I Met Phoenix but I didn't know when I wrote it that he was scenic. So I was, so sell- I was giving away school lunches in the park, like through the summer school lunch program. And like this kid, like in this tiger hat at the other end of the park was like staring at me fixedly and like came up to me and started talking to me about his shoes and like his workout routine. And like, he just like, he was so fucking cool. He was the coolest kid I'd ever met in my life. And like, I talked to him for like 15 minutes and then he went away. And I did not get him out of my head. So I wrote him into The Hustle. And then he got, after The Hustle, he got his own book, The Other Place, of this kid, Justin, who's schizophrenic, and trying to make it as an artist. And, like, all of this weird shit, all these people trying to either take advantage of him or misunderstanding him. And, like, that was my way of dealing with
2: my brain being the way it is. And when Mm. I, when I met Phoenix, all of
1: a sudden I saw myself and all of the problems I've had with people, like when I would do something and the reaction I would get from people would be so different than what I was, what I thought I was putting out there.
2: Yeah.
1: And when I met him and saw how he was, I was like, oh, like that, I'm like that. Like that's, that's what the fuck has been going on my whole life mm. and and I've gotten a lot better at acting a little more normal um, <laughs> but like so when i after I wrote <clears throat> the rest of that series with um the other place series with Justin as the schizophrenic main character, like I was looking at it and i'm like i'm not I'm not getting this right like I need I need more outside like i need to like talk to this kid right like i need to explore this brain thing more because i can only get so much from seeing it from the inside like i need to Mm you know it's not really research when you're just like making friends with someone right but i had no idea how to get a hold of him like i had no idea who he was i had no idea what his name was where he lived so i just went back to the park that i had met him at originally and i walked in And then I'm like, what am I fucking doing? Like, I just, (laughs) like six months later thinking I'm going to meet the same kid. And I just, as I was about to leave, Phoenix walks up carrying his basketball and he's like, Hey, it's you. I've been looking for you.
2: Like six months
1: after I'd had, like, this is the synchronicity thing, right? Yeah. So like, and yeah, no, he, and so we were best friends for like i when my husband kicked me out of the house like i lived in my car with him and shit like oh yeah like, it got some gonzo reporting and stuff <laughs> but like so but like a lot of my books deal with with neurodivergence like other ways of
2: yeah with
1: people with different sorts of brains and um and i don't i don't i don't do that from a representation standpoint although like if i could as much as i can like um take advantage of that aspect of it if it's going to get people involved and interested in my books that's fine but like yeah that's just <laughs> people that i like to write about. yeah
2: yeah so well it's it,
1: short there you go <laughs> yeah it,
0: i i hope i didn't imply that it was some like cynical sort of
1: no no i didn't either. okay
0: <laughs> yeah no it feels i mean it felt like totally genuine uh and and authentic and um like yeah, yeah like, researched i like think is a is a good word
1: everybody in them is the same type of person like the, yeah
0: you
1: know it's boring
0: it's yeah <laughs> you know the the whole like uh neurodivergence thing is really interesting to me I like w- one of the qualities of i wrote that like article about liminal trickster mystics and i listed i don't know like nine or ten qualities that uh, comprised liminality and mysticism and trickster dumb or whatever. Um, but the the one that didn't make the cut and that I kind of regret not putting in there is that so many of us are, for some reason, just a little bit outside of the norm. And uh, it, it can be like a, like a religious upbringing difference or a orientation or like very, very often there's some sort of, uh, neurodivergent situation going on. Like I, I, um, I hope I'm not like outing anybody on the Creek Mason discord, but like, it feels like uh, like 90% of us are autistic and the other 10 are bipolar, you know, <laughs> like it's, it's a lot of uh, a lot of that energy in, in the space that is like being created, like this, this target demographic that you were describing at the beginning uh, this,
1: yeah, well, I mean, it's and it's about time that we found each other and were and instead of just being misfits, like we we're like no, like this thing that we are, this this vibe that we're creating is a hell of a lot better than the mainstream shit that they're offering out yeah. there. Like, I would much rather be a completely crazy person than like be a cop. I don't know. Like
2: personally. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Is I mean like is it which is more crazy, you know? Like I think I think we're we're having fun in our in our in our uh
2: I guess what? Stigmatized you know silliness. Fuck it. Let's uh you know,
0: I don't I you said the you've alluded to the the woman in purple robes and you alluded to the Messiah and you know things like that. i I think you know the just this thought that I want to end on is uh this this potential that I think that we have as a as a like subculture to be they say the next Buddha is gonna be in the Sangha. And it it's not going to be like one enlightened Buddha who like shows up and like converts everyone to Buddhism, and it's not like a a second coming thing where like Jesus reincarnates or whatever. It's more that like the next uh, the next big ripple in human consciousness is this like group awakening. And I think that, uh, you know, when you look at people like Duncan Trussell or Douglas Rushkoff or Jessa Reed, who very much is that like communing with the aliens kind of person, like all of them are so adamant that they don't want to be gurus. They like, not they're, they're aware that they're human, you know? And like, I think like you, you and me in this conversation, we've expressed the same thing. Like it it's, it's not desirable to be the like the messiah it it really should be like a an egalitarian like inclusive kind of you know rising tide that lifts all boats kind of situation i think that that, that feels a little bit more authentic to the the subculture that we belong to you know
1: i mean i think it would like if you completely live the being of light like if if somehow you have figured out how to completely not be an asshole and (laughs) no matter what happens around you you're just like vibing and you're cool with it like if you figure out how to do that you are so different you're not not only are you so different than the regular angry butthole who is walking the street every day but like Hmm. everyone wants to be around it right because it's like you are putting out into the universe the best vibe in the world and everybody wants to be around it and that has to be scary and annoying as fuck and like (laughs) like no one like no one really especially if like you figured out how to just vibe your whole life like you want to just do that. And you don't want all of these people like coming and like kissing your feet and being weird and stuff probably <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I, but if I did meet someone like that, I would want to kiss their feet and be around them all the time. because. They, <laughs> so I don't know, you know, it's, it's yeah. their fault for being so cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's blame the cool people for their coolness. You're, you're cool. You're, you, this was a, this was such a delight. We've been going for about an hour. I loved this conversation and I, I was uh you know, it's just another one of those things where like the things that you're just percolating on constantly come up in the, in the, in the podcasts that you record. It's just, it's a law of nature. And so I, I really appreciate you coming on, becoming a node and just talking about all the things I love to talk about. That was, that was really fun.
1: Thank you very much for having me. This was fun.
0: Yeah. Do you, uh, so your website, uh, is there anything you want to direct people to? Oh,
1: it's my website is tales from purgatory.com. All one word. I, um, I put all my eggs in the Twitter basket and now Twitter sucks. Yeah. Uh, And I don't want to be on there anymore. Um, I'm also Tales from Purgatory on TikTok, but I just mostly right now have uh, videos of my dogs being cute on there. And I don't
0: know. (laughs) It sounds like the kind of thing that dominates my TikTok feed. I'm not going to (laughs)
1: lie. It's the reason I'm on TikTok. (laughs) Yeah. Cute animals. I
0: mean, like if you're talking pragmatism, uh what is the effect of watching cute animals all day? I think it's a mood boost for sure.
2: Yeah. So
0: Tales from Purgatory. <laughs> uh I'll I'll put I'll put all those things up on Creek Mason's. I'm on Substack. Maybe you could join me there. It's pretty fun. Yeah, I
1: would love to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh and this will be on the Creek Masons Substack. Uh so there's your there's your in. Um what else? I think that's it. I think so. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yeah. What a delight. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Bye-bye.